you know, probably wondering what's in the brown bag. Uh, maybe I brought my lunch and I'll just eat it while um, you're watching, but I, I won't. Victoria asked me this morning if um, I was going to um, pay people to do jumping jacks. Um, I think probably if I gave a dollar to everybody here and made you all do jumping jacks, uh, I'd just be a poor man at the end of the service. So we're not going to do that. Um, can I get the children to come forward? So um, we are going to be talking this morning about the story of um, of a slave of Abram's, um, and um, and so she. Um, in our story, ran away, and when she was out in the desert by a spring, she um, saw an angel. And she is one of the only people in the Bible who gave God a name. Does anybody know what name she gave God? No? So she, she named him Elroy. Okay, which doesn't mean anything. Do, do you know what? Would you call God El Roy? No. Well, it's it's actually Hebrew. Okay, so so it doesn't um, it doesn't um, make any sense to us to call God El Roy, um, but El Roy means the God who sees me. Um, so. So does anybody know what these are? Yes. They are binoculars, okay? So I'm going to have each one of you come up here, and you can try them out, and you can look at the people out here and see if you see anything unusual about them, okay? So does anybody want to come up and try these binoculars out? So there's a little dial there, and you can sort of, you can see all the way to the back of the gym. Um, you can see all the people who are sitting here. You can see if they didn't wash their faces really good this morning, Okay. Anybody else want to try the binoculars out? Here you go, Victoria. Um, so with binoculars, you can see things that are what? Far away, that's right. Okay, so if you look at things that are too close up with binoculars, you can't see very much, can you? Um, does anybody else want to try them? So... Um, so that's a little bit how God is, isn't it? God can see stuff that's far away. So do you think if you could, uh, if you took these binoculars out on a dark night, you could see other planets? Uh, well, you might be able to because, you know, Mars, you can see that with your naked eyes. So you might see it a little bigger with these binoculars. But if there were Martians, which I'm going to give you a big secret, there aren't Martians. But if there were Martians you couldn't see them with these binoculars because they're not powerful enough. You'd need something a lot more powerful than that to see the Martians, okay? Because uh, assuming the Martians were the size of normal people and the planet is a, a few million miles away, we, we just can't see them with binoculars this size. But God could see them, couldn't he? So God can not only see... Okay, so when I'm looking through the binoculars, if I'm looking at Wendy, I probably can't see Delvin at the same time because my attention is on Wendy. But God can see everybody in this gym at the same time. So 
it's kind of neat. So God can see me in my office in Brook Neal at the same time as he sees Delvin on his farm and Ben out on a job site. So he can see all of us all at the same time. So it's a little different from binoculars, but I thought the binoculars were just kind of a, a nice way to think about it. God sees us as important, and he pays attention to us. Okay? So you all can go back to your families. So we're going to be talking about the story of Ishmael this morning. And one of the things that I find intriguing about the Bible is how clearly it shows the flaws of the characters that are inside Scripture. So at the beginning of this story, Sarai is 75 years old. Abram is 85 years old. And I think they've pretty much given up hope that they were going to have a child. And so we're going to break this, um, this passage down into two parts. We're going to be looking, first of all, at Abram um, and Sarai and, um, and see some kind of bad things about the way that they behaved. And then we're going to move on um, to the second part, which hopefully is going to be a little bit more uplifting than the first part. And that is going to be talking about Hagar and the, the God who sees me. So it seems to me when I think about it that um, men tend to go in one of two directions. Um, some just get really passive and they just don't do very much and they just, um, you know, they just sit around. And, um, and uh, maybe Abram in this, um, this passage would be a good example of that. Um, and some get really just aggressive and angry and, um, and they think that they're in charge all the time. And that's not good either. And so we're going to think a little bit about what servant leadership should look like. So part one here, Sarai's solution. So we're going to be going to Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to read the first six verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So I hate this story. Hagar is a slave. She has no agency. She isn't asked what she wants to do. Um, Her name means forsaken, and I'm sure that she felt forsaken at this point. Um, And so we begin this story, though, with a problem. Sarai hadn't had a child, um, and she doesn't think she's going to have one. She's given up hope. 
And the interesting thing, maybe, is that she identifies God as the source of her infertility. She says, see, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Um, And, of course, this wasn't the case. Um, God hadn't blessed her with children yet, but he wasn't done with her either. But Sarai decides that she is going to do something. She is going to let Hagar be a surrogate mother for her. Um, And this was okay in the culture of that time. It was not unusual for women to give their maidservants to their husbands. And um, if you read the story of of Rachel and Leah, um, they gave their maidservants to Jacob, and he had a whole bunch of of children. And and whenever you look at the 12 tribes of of, um, Israel, the ones that were born to the, the maidservants are also tribes. So it wasn't like they were different. Um, so even more than that, in ancient times, polygamy was widely accepted. So Abram was wealthy. It wouldn't have been unusual for somebody who had a servant um, in the hundreds to have more than one wife. And the Old Testament even seemed to allow for polygamy. Um, but there's not a single story in the Bible that seems to indicate that polygamy is beneficial. So um, it's not beneficial for the men. It's not beneficial for the wives. Um, Deuteronomy 21 verse 15 talks a little bit about this and it, it talks about it in a pretty negative way. It says if a man has two wives, one loved and the other, other unloved. And so it's sort of talking about whether a man can disinherit the, the unloved wives, um, children. It says, no, you can't do that. So if you look at stories of Jacob, um, and his wives, Hannah and, um, and Elkanah's other wife, um, Solomon with his numerous wives, you, you find that lots of wives aren't a good thing. So there's a reason why we don't allow more than one wife. Um, so just in case any of you all were thinking, you know, we're kind of restrictive here at Bethel, I'm going to go out on the limb here and say that I think we have it right. Uh, so hopefully you all believe the same as that. So we're going to be talking a lot about Abram in just a little bit here, but I'd like to think just a little bit about Sarai. Um, And I think when we get to the beginning of the story, we see how much at the end of herself she is. Uh, This giving of her servant to Abram is not something that she wanted to do. I'm sure it wasn't. Um, You know, if she had any hope left that she would bear a child, she would not have done this. And she got angry when Hagar got pregnant. So, you know, and then she blamed Abram um, when it was her own suggestion. And I actually agree with her. You know, this is Abram's fault. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, But, you know, sometimes wives give their husbands permission to do things that the wives don't want their husbands to do. And that's probably not a good thing. Um... You know, it's, it's better if a wife tells her husband, you know, I'd rather you didn't do that, um, or I was hoping we could do something else instead of that. Um, but at the same time, sometimes husbands have to read between the lines and say, you know, my wife says I can go out with my buddies this evening, but I think she'd really rather have me stay home and, um, and help out or do something like that. And I think, Sarah, I hoped... For one of two things. She hoped either that Abram would say, no, I love you, Sarai, and I'm not going to take your maidservant, even though you've offered her to me. Or she hoped 
that the infertility issues were Abram's and that Hagar wouldn't get pregnant. Um, and so she was angry. And Abram sort of said, okay, well, do whatever you want. And she made Hagar's life pretty miserable. And we don't know exactly what she did, but Hagar got so frustrated that she ran away into the desert. So I'd like to move to talking about Abram's passivity just a little bit. So Abram was content to let his wife steer the course. Um, I work with worked with a, a doctor, Dr. Jones, and, and he told me that the most important two words um, a, a married man can learn are the words, yes, dear. Uh, and those are good words to know. I, I think there's a lot of times when, um, when we should be agreeable. And, um, but we also need to, to pay attention. If there's bad plans or, or things that are just not wise for our families, we also need to identify that. Um, King Ahab wanted a vineyard, and his wife figured out a way to get it. And um, it just doesn't seem like Ahab paid too much attention to, to this whole plan thing. Um, and so, you know, passivity is not okay. We need to be an active part and not a bystander to our own lives. So we see Abram's issues in a couple of things. First of all, we don't hear him saying anything in response to Sarai's request. Um, to take Hagar. He just went along with it. And I think, you know, this is perhaps understandable. You know, somebody showed up outside church and offered you a briefcase with a million dollars in it. Would you ask a lot of questions about where the million dollars came from? I mean, you might, um, but you might just say, you know, million dollars would be really handy. I could give some of it to the church and we'd build a new sanctuary. We wouldn't even have to have any more fundraising for a while. Who knows? And so when something, something is offered to you, sometimes you just sort of go along with it. Um, and so he wanted a son really, really badly, and he couldn't think of another way to get one, and his wife had come up with something. And so he said, okay. So more than that, he did not take responsibility. If Abram was a leader in their home, he should have taken responsibility for the situation. Instead, he shifted the responsibility to Sarah. He said, your maid is in your hand. Do as you please. And that just feels really bad to me. You know, you're upset with this woman. Um, guests do whatever you feel like. And if you talk to Abram right, now, right at this point, he probably would have said, I'm just trying to support my wife here. I support her and I take care of her and, and I'm kind to her. And this just doesn't feel adequate. So what is true servant leadership? So it's important for us to remember that servant leadership does not mean just blindly doing the things that other people want you to do. So if my patients ask me to prescribe something that I think is going to be harmful to them, I shouldn't prescribe those things to them even if they really want it, okay? This was a problem a few years ago when there was a real pain um, medication epidemic and, and people just wanted pain pills and they didn't always want them for good reasons. And people would come in and they would almost beg to get a prescription for something that you knew they were addicted to and it was harmful for them. 
And if you see that kind of situation, you just can't do it. Um, if my children ask me to buy them a flamethrower, I probably shouldn't buy them a flamethrower, even if it would make them very, very happy for about 10 seconds. Ephesians 5, we're going to read verses 25 through 33. Um, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. It nourishes and cherishes cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And I've heard this preached on a lot, particularly at weddings. Um, and it's understandable. It's, a, it's a, a passage that talks about love. And specifically about the love that men are to have for their wives. Men are to love their wives the way that Jesus loves us. And so Paul says two things here. He says, men, love your wives the way that Jesus loved the church. And the point here. I think is that Jesus loved the church when the church did not love Jesus. Okay, so the church wasn't perfect. The church did not love Jesus. The church was nothing. And Jesus said, I love those people so much that I'm going to do anything to win them back to me. And the second thing is that men are to love their wives the way that they love their own bodies. Uh, And men aren't always good at taking care of their bodies. I don't know. Um, but they don't deliberately hurt themselves either. So, you know, men don't go to the doctor more than they have to, but, um, but at the same time, they, they don't, you know, deliberately, um, do things that are, that are harmful and hurting to themselves. In this, we see the sacrifice. Jesus gave up everything he had for us, for the church. He gave up his own life so that we can be free from sin. And then the second thing we see is that there's nourishment and care. So we do this for our own bodies. We need to do this for our wives as well. Phillips says, in my experience, a husband's caring love is one of the greatest needs in most marriages. A wife's heart is dried up by a husband who pays her little attention, takes no interest in her emotional life, and does not connect with her heart. So we are to love our wives and lead them as Jesus leads the church. Second thing is, a servant leader has a faithful love. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, And he answered, this is Jesus talking, and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh, So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And I think that this is one area in which Abram probably did better than a lot of the people around him. 
Um, he was committed to Sarai. He didn't abandon her when she wasn't bearing children for him. Um, and he didn't even take any extra wives on. Um, but I think, too, even more of the, the story of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, and yet he remained faithful to her. Um, it's such a beautiful story, and, and a hard story to read, too, of a, of a man who loves to the very end. When he comes to the slave market, and she is at the end of herself, and she's being sold, and he bids on her, and he bids and bids until... There are no bidders left against them. And he says at the end, I have bought you and I will take you home and you will no longer play the harlot, but you are my wife. She was his slave and yet he offered her something more. That's a faithful love. It's a love focused on service. Mark 10:45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus demonstrated what life of service was. It was something that from the moment he woke up in the morning till, till he fell asleep at night, he was focused on meeting the needs of the people who were following him, trying to prepare them for the time when he would not be there anymore. And the final thing that I think servant leaders need to think about is that love is built on understanding. First um, Peter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not, may not be hindered. Um, and I think a lot of times we have trouble loving our wives because we don't understand them. We don't know them. Uh, I was thinking about uh, when Americans travel the world. I don't know how many, how many of you all have been to another country? Lots of people. Okay. So how many of you all, before you traveled to that other country, did you make an effort to learn the language of the country you were going to? Okay. Two people, three people. <laughs> so, so, Americans in general expect people to learn English. Like, you know, I'm going to Portugal. I would like the people in Portugal an expectation of my coming to learn English so they can talk to me. And that seems reasonable, right? That's the way we think. You know, if you want to communicate with me, learn to know me, understand me, understand my language. And yet... The Bible tells husbands, learn to talk your wife's language. This is more important than if you're traveling to Portugal or to Nigeria or to Guatemala. You need to learn your wife's language. And more than that, Peter says that when husbands do not dwell with their wives with understanding that their prayers are going to be hindered, okay? Have you ever felt like you are not connecting with God because your connection with your wife is not as good as it should be? I think that's a real thing. It can be connection with other people too, I'm sure. But, but this is really important. Peter puts it in this way because he's saying this relationship is one of the most important relationships that you have. And if you do not make the effort to understand your wife and to communicate well with her, it is going to not only damage that relationship, but it's going to damage 
this upper relationship with God. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear. So I thought about just preaching about this this morning, and it felt like it just was kind of really discouraging place to end up. And so I thought we would go on and um, not divide this into two parts, but we're going to talk about Hagar in the desert. So Genesis 16, we're going to read verses 7 through 16. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. And he said to her, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the Lord, who spoke to her. And it says in Hebrew here, El Roy, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahoi Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And this part of the story is both good and bad. So who is Hagar? Uh, we've already said her name meant either flight or forsaken. And if you notice in this story, neither Abram or Sarai ever calls her by her name. They never do. They don't say, you know, Hagar, the Egyptian slave, or anything about her. She is just the servant, a nameless person. They knew her name. But the only reason why we know her name is because the angel called her by it. She was the lowest of the low. Her life probably wasn't great before Sarai decided to see if she could bear a child for Abram. Um, And not only was she a slave, but she was an Egyptian, Um, probably not an original member of Abram's household. Um, We probably guess that um, when Pharaoh gave a bunch of stuff, livestock and servants to Abram, when he was in Egypt, um, that she was just part of the part of the stuff that he gave, and so she's been in Abram's house ever ever since. And things got really bad for Hagar. Have you ever asked yourself how bad would it have to be for Hagar to flee out into the wilderness? How bad had her life gotten? And I know from my own experience that things can be pretty bad, and yet I stick in whatever's going on. Because you say to yourself, you know, what I'm doing right now doesn't seem great, but it could be worse. And so we stay in situations that maybe we just don't feel good about. And Hagar had nothing to flee to. She flees out in the wilderness, and there she is, 
by herself, by a spring. This spring was on the way to Egypt. It's um, in a place called Shur. And we don't know um, exactly where this was, but it's probably just on the edge of where um, the Sinai Peninsula begins. And so she has miles and miles of desert, and she just doesn't have the strength necessary to get to Egypt, where she hopes there's somebody there who will take her in. She's exhausted. She's at the end of herself. And here the angel of the Lord comes up, and he asks her two questions. He says, where are you coming from, and where are you going to? And he calls her by her name. So Hagar answers only one of these questions. She says, I'm from Abram's household. And she doesn't answer the second question. She didn't know where she was going. She only knew where she was going away from because it was so terrible. And I think all of us have been in this sort of situation. We can look back and see where we've come from, but we don't really know where we're going to. We just hope it's better than where we've left. And so here we have the message of the angel. He says to Hagar to return to Abram's household. And, you know, I struggle with that because it feels like she's going back into an abusive situation. Uh, and I don't want to read too much into that. Um, that's where God wanted her to be, He's where he wanted Ishmael to grow up. Um, but she is going back bolstered by two things. First of all, that God saw her, and that makes a difference. Before she didn't know God, she hadn't heard his voice, and now she has. And second, her son was a son of promise. And I think this is really important. Sometimes we think about Isaac as the son of promise, and he was. This was, in a sense, a mistake. But for her, Ishmael was her son of promise. Um, he would be free in a way that Hagar never was, and through, her, through him, she would have many descendants. And Ishmael means God will hear. Um, it's a wonderful name. Um, and the reason for this name was simple. It was because God had heard her affliction and her suffering. And every time his name was spoken, it would come to, back to her as a testimony that God cared for her, the nameless slave. And I'll just throw out here, you know, some people have said, you know, the, um, the tensions between Jews and Arabs today come because of the whole tension between Isaac and Ishmael. And I, I just, I'd say, you know, that's not true. Um, you know, if you've heard somebody say that, there's nothing biblical to back that up. Ishmael was important in his own way. He just wasn't the one through whom God was going to, um, God was going to bring the Messiah. And so this, you know, Ishmael still was father of many, many nations that were around that area. So Hagar's moment of understanding. So to this point, the angel has been talking to her, and now she says something, and she says something very profound. First, she names God. And this is a big deal. God gave people names, but few people gave God names. And yet God, Hagar gave God the name El Roy. Two wonderful things stand out here. 
God hears, we see that in Ishmael, the name, and God sees. And he doesn't just hear and see the mighty and the wealthy and the, and the famous people. He sees a poor, nameless, afflicted, pregnant Egyptian slave with nowhere to go. And I don't know what Hagar was thinking when she said this, but I know that it's not enough for us to know that God sees us. And the story does end with Hagar returning. I hope she was treated better by Abram and Sarai. Um, it seems that Abram heard her story, and it did make a difference, because whenever the son was born, he was named Ishmael. So I think there's two aspects of this story that I really want to come back to. First of all, we need real leaders. Um, I focus on men maybe, but women have responsibilities as well. They have times when they need to be leaders. Um, and when you picture a leader, what do you picture? Do you picture a, a Roman emperor who's coming back from conquest, um, dragging slaves behind and riding in a golden chariot with some kind of a wreath on his head? Um, if, that, if that's your picture of what leadership is like, you need to have a reset. Because what leadership looks like is Jesus before he goes to the cross, bending down and washing his disciples' feet. We're going to be coming to uh, an ordination before too long. And when we ordain somebody, we are looking for somebody who already has these characteristics. We're not looking for somebody who's going to, to grow into the role. And so each one of us needs to think about the ways in which we are serving, we are ministering to the people we are leading. And then the second thing is the God who sees me. Uh, this is a wonderful and a scary thing, too. Uh, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the story of Zacchaeus. We're not going to read it. Um, it's a story about a man who is shorter than everybody around. And, you know, people back then were probably shorter than they are today. And so, you know, who knows? Zacchaeus may have been 4 or 11. He may have been shorter than that. And he's walking, he wants to see Jesus. And so he climbs up in a tree. And what does the song say? As the Savior passed by that day, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm coming to your house today. And Zacchaeus is the sort of person that other people tried not to see. He was a tax collector. He was a sinner. He was a lot of things that he shouldn't have been. He was desperate to see Jesus, but the blessing was that Jesus saw him. The story would have been very different if it had just been Zacchaeus seeing Jesus, and that was where it ended. But when God sees us, it is also uncomfortable. So if children had been standing up here with those binoculars just peering at you and peering at you, you would start to feel just a little bit uncomfortable. And if they kept looking just at you, you would think, you know, are they seeing something about me that's not so great? Um, when my father was a boy, their family had neighbors who were kind of snoopy. And uh, one day their neighbor commented on something that was new in their um, family's living room. And, um, and um, they had not been in the house recently. And so uh, my grandfather was sort of aggravated by this. And so he, uh, he set up a telescope in the um, living room, um, 
pointed at the um, neighbor's house and just pulled the curtains around it. So it was pointed over there just to sort of send them the message. We're watching them. I don't think anybody was actually looking through the telescope. Um, Jonah fled from God. Um, and it says in Jonah chapter 1, when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And God still saw Jonah. God saw Jonah when he was in the, in the bottom of the ship. He saw Jonah when he was thrown overboard. He saw Jonah when he was in the, in the belly of the fish. Um, and so if God has asked us to do something, he is going to pay attention to us as we do or don't do that. Um, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 24 says, Where can I go from your presence? Or where can I flee from, I'm sorry, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as a day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You discovered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I'm going to drop down to the, to the end of the passage where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And simply put, we cannot flee from God. We can try. We can delude ourselves that we've gone someplace where he can't see us, that we've hidden our thoughts from him. And it's uncomfortable knowing that the judge of all the earth knows our very thoughts, the things that we're thinking, the things that we thought we might do but we didn't do. And I think a lot of people in the last day have this idea that they'll get off on a technicality, that God is going to have to say, well, I guess you're going to have to come in. Or And the beautiful thing in this psalm is that it begins with David saying, you see me, you see everything about me. And it ends with him inviting God in. God, search me. Look through my life. See what is right. See what is not right. And lead me in the way everlasting. So as I come to the end of this sermon, it may seem like a weird place to, to think, but I was thinking about spy satellites. Um, the United States has the most spy satellites um, of any country in the world. Um, they have over 100 spy satellites. Um, and these perform different kinds of functions. So some of them are are taking pictures, um, and some of them are intercepting cell phone signals. And, and um, so these spy satellites are about 120 miles up. And I was trying to figure out how, how small an object can they pick up. So they can see about a resolution about five to six inches um, is what people say. I don't know that the U.S. government has said what they can see, but this is what 
what people think they can see. So there's something about maybe the size of a cell phone they could see, um, but they probably couldn't read. Like if you punched in a number, they couldn't read the number on there. And so, you know, when I was, uh, I've heard a song, um, and I think people think it's actually a Christian song, which it isn't. Um, and the chorus of that song says, God is watching us from a distance. And it sort of sounds vaguely spiritual to say, you know, God is watching me from a distance, like a spy satellite or something up in, in space that can sort of see what I'm doing and where I'm going. Maybe a little bit how some people think of Santa Claus. But this is kind of a deist way of thinking of things. So the founding fathers, when they, when they would talk about God, they would talk about him as this kind of nebulous, overseeing entity who who was watching things and sort of set things in motion, but he didn't have a, a personal part in our lives, a personal part in, in what we do. And I think a lot of people believe this sort of concept about God. But Hagar, in this passage, understood something quite different. She did not name God Elroy because he was spying on her from space and had some account of her actions she named him the god who sees me because he saw her and cared for her matthew 1 through 25 we read this at christmas all the time behold the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name emmanuel which is translated god with us then joseph being aroused from sleep did as the angel of the lord commanded him and took him to wife took him took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. And this is the crux of the gospel. Emmanuel, God with us. God sees us. He has chosen to be a part of our world to redeem us just as he saw and cared for Hagar. He sees us and cares for us too. And that's a blessing. <laughs>